0: Welcome to The Last Ottoman, a podcast series in which we discuss the Ottoman Empire and its legacy today. We are at the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking. My name is David Sillim Sayers. And today, on the third episode of The Last Ottoman, it is my pleasure to welcome my friend and colleague, Zachary Foster, whose research on Palestine has been making waves for the last five years, even though, or perhaps precisely because, he has chosen to take his work and career outside the university. Zach, welcome to the show. David, thanks so much for having me on. Zach, uh, let me dive straight in. Uh, your PhD thesis was entitled The Invention of Palestine. And as the title indicates, you place a lot of importance on the fact that the concept of Palestine was, quote-unquote, invented. In your eyes, is that a good thing or a bad thing?
1: So I would say all places are invented, uh, countries regions states counties lands none of these things exist in nature so the places and the spaces and the lands that we inhabit um they're all invented and and so i think what that means is that you cannot go to a geologist or a pathologist uh, someone who studies soil or or a biologist or a chemist or a physicist and ask them what is palestine You have to go to a historian or a social scientist or a humanist because a a physicist and a biologist and a chemist, if you ask them what is Palestine, they do not have the tools. They do not have the analytical tools or the scientific tools to tell you what Palestine is. right? I think what what that means, I think, is um, is that it's really the job of the historian and the social scientist to tell us what Palestine is. It's an invention. That's what it is. We made it up. Is that a good or a bad thing? Um, I don't. I, I wouldn't say it's 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 neither a good thing nor a bad thing. It's just a reality of of living in a, in a complex societies with complex identities. I think that, um, for for example, I think that. Um, you know when when you have um, when you have complex societies, you need places. You need these invented places. Why, why why do we need invented places when you have complex societies? Think of just like any state or any society. How is it you can function in a society without naming places? You're like hey David, let's let's meet up in Polon- Polanco. Well, if you don't know what Polanco is, then how are we going to be able to meet there? Like hey Dave, let's let's meet up in, in Amsterdam in in uh, in January. Well hey. If if I don't, if, if that's an unintelligible word to me, then we're just not going to be able to communicate. Right. How is it that you govern a, a place or a space right. without being able to tell your uh, direct reports uh, or communicate to your commander, hey, we were unable to conquer Palestine, we failed to conquer Lebanon, or how, how is it that you can even have a chain of command? How is it that you can conduct <laughs> operations of a state right. without dividing that state into different lands, or right. different territories, or different counties?
0: I mean, you're, you're talking about nationalism, or, uh, you know, the, the way uh, what Benedict Anderson would describe as the imagined community, right, on the one hand, um, but the problem is, of course, uh, on the one hand, we all know that all nations are invented. On the other hand, when you stress that in a certain way, then you might, find yourself in trouble because hey of course my nation pre- sort of precedes history my nation precedes uh, you know a- anything else that's been around forever so uh, it feels a little bit like there's a little bit of a provocation in your title when it comes to when it comes to that aspect of nationalism
1: you're you're absolutely right about that, and and I and I would like to get into that in, in just a second. But let me just make one other quick point about invented identities, because I think there's this perception, as you point out, that there's somehow something somehow problematic or illegitimate about an invented identity. By the way, all human identities are invented. Um, I identify as Jewish. Uh, I'm a proud Jew. I go to synagogue sometimes. I make uh, Shabbat dinner sometimes. Uh, by the way, Judaism is invented, okay? Human beings invented it. And and I'm still Jewish and I'm still a proud Jew. There's nothing wrong with believing and being proud in an invented identity, right? So um, that, that, that's the first point I would make.
0: Right, um, right. The, the,
1: the second point I would make, though, is that, um, you know, I don't think it really matters, right? Like what, what we call these places, um, you know, to, to this question of like, you know, does it matter that this is an invented identity or an invented place? Well, I don't think so. If we call it Israel or if we call it Palestine, or if we call it Judea or Samaria or Eretz Israel or Bilayi Sham or the land of Canaan, like, I don't think it really makes any difference at all. I mean, th- think about, for example, like, does it matter if we call this Jack Herrera or sour diesel or Bubba Kush or gelato, like... It makes no difference at all, right? We just made these things up
0: well, these are just it, it, it might make a difference in sort of how it uh, how how much of a how much of a high it gives me, but I'd have to do. I'd I'd have to look into that exactly right. So
1: we use these words, these strings of sounds and syllables. We use them because we need to use them because in order for human beings to communicate uh, intelligible ideas from one human being to another human being, we need to use these words that refer to complete inventions, completely invented ideas. And that's the nature of human communication. That's the nature of human language. Um, And I, there's something wrong with that. I mean, I, I think, but but however, however, what, what I would say though, is that this random string of sounds and syllables that we have to arbitrarily invent and create and use um that even though it's arbitrary and thus it should be irrelevant
0: unfortunately it is not irrelevant right right and i mean that actually brings me to the second question that i wanted to ask you because um in your in your research on palestine part of your research is actually a meticulous tracing of the different names the region of palestine has had throughout history and uh, the question that uh, Uh, poses itself there sort of relates to what you were just saying because why exactly is it so important what we call a place i mean you were saying okay well at the end of the day it's arbitrary but uh if i mean you know I'll, i'll give you i'll give you a chance to explain because after all uh political sort of actions political political realities get tied to these names and then it it does start making a difference do you want to go into that a little bit
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I I completely agree with you that despite the fact that these are arbitrary strings of words that we use in order to communicate intelligently, at the same time, these arbitrary sounds, these arbitrary strings of sounds that refer to things in the world, um, even though we've invented them, they actually do have real world implications. So let me just give you a few examples. When Israel conquered the West Bank and Gaza uh, in in 1967, it shut down the Bank of Palestine. Okay, And then when uh, it was set to allow that Bank of Palestine in Gaza to reopen in 1980, the Israeli army required the Bank of Palestine to change its name. Now, let me ask you, what was so problematic about the name, the Bank of Palestine? Well, from the point of view of the Israeli army, it quote unquote, endangered Israeli security. You heard that correctly. The word Palestine being used in the name of a bank was endangering Israeli security. Palestine, 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 Palestine. Alert. Anyone listening to this podcast, you have 15 seconds to find shelter before you get hit <laughs> in the face by my saliva. Okay? It's such a ridiculous concept that a word that refers right. to a space or a territory or land is right. dangerous. Right. But here we are living in a place, living in this country where, in fact, they're criminalizing the use of a word, of, of, of this specific word referring to this land. Right? right? So even though it's arbitrary and that we made it up and that's invented, well, clearly some people think this arbitrary word has like really important implications in the real world. Absolutely. And this is one- this is one example, you know, if you look at, for example, Chance the Rapper, a very popular rapper based out of the UK, he has a song where he he talks about Palestine all about all over the sound, all, all throughout the song. And the BBC was showing this music video once, and there was this huge controversy whereby the BBC was bleeping out the word Palestine as, as if it was a curse word, because they must have had some like pro-Israel pundit on staff who's like, oh my God, like... The the word Palestine is so dangerous. This is inciting to violence, right? Like, so so we live in this world where the word Palestine is being criminalized. It's being treated as a curse word, free Palestine from the river to the sea. Mark Lamont said that on on CNN and he got fired. Right. Why is it that saying the word Palestine is problematic or that it's criminalized? Well, I think the answer is that we live in a world where Palestinian identity, the idea of Palestine has been delegitimized. It, it's been delegitimized because you have this very powerful state the jewish state of israel that has hel- been hell-bent on erasing palestine and Palestinian identity from memory and from view and so and so i think ultimately like it's precisely because that we have this uh, state and these people who are hell-bent on destroying an entire other culture's identity that we have to uh, uh, sort of look and and ask ourselves like okay well What is Palestine? Let's talk. Let's talk through this concept. Let's try and understand it.
0: Uh, actually, um, one thing that, uh, that, that, that sort of popped into my mind as you were saying this about the sort of erasure of this concept of Palestine relates to, relates to something that I wanted to ask you later on, but it, uh, it ties in much better here. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask that because this, uh, it relates to the, to the art, I want to say, because I don't want to really call it a science, uh, the art of writing history. And um, in your research, uh, especially uh, concerning the term Palestine, you've come across some very problematic, to say, to, 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 to say the least, very problematic ways of writing, rewriting, sort of, um, let's say, kind of um, directioning history that uh, uh, are very one-sided in the way that they, that they uh, account for the usage or the non-usage of the word Palestine. And this from some very, very well-respected and eminent historians. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so <clears throat> the word Palestine, uh, ha, ha, for, for various reasons, I think per, in part because it has been politicized and criminalized, there's a rich body of literature of, of historical research trying to understand when people use the word Palestine in history, who used the word Palestine in, in history, how often it was used, and to refer to what land. And, and so this has been really the focus of my, of my dissertation research is really just trying to understand when people use this term. And you could say the term dates to the ancient world. It was used by the ancient Philistines. It was used by the ancient Egyptians. You find it in hier- hieroglyphic texts. It was used by the ancient, uh, uh, the biblical peoples, the Jews. You, the, in the Bible, you have the word pleshit, plishtim. It was used in ancient Assyrian sources. And from the ancient world, it gets uh, uh, it gets translated into Aramaic sources. And then from Aramaic, it goes into uh, Greek and Latin and then Arabic and all the modern European languages. And then all the uh, modern Western and, and non- non-Western and Eastern in non-Eastern languages, and and so that that, that that's the that, that's the short part of the story. We, we could dive deeper into any particular period of history if you're curious. Um, but I, I would say just just one. I mean, w- w- one thing I would point out is that I think there's been a tendency among historians. Um, to to point to the fact that a, a, after it, it it fell out of use. So the the basic the basic narrative around the the, the historical usage of the word Palestine is that you know, it was used in the ancient world, and then the Arab conquerors uh, adopted the Byzantine usage of the word Palestine. And so in the early Islamic period, the, there was a, there was a province, there was a district in the Islamic states in the Umayyad Caliphate known as the Jund Philistine or the District of Palestine. And then uh, the, the the argument goes. After the Crusader conquest, uh, the, the term Palestine fell out of use. It was no longer used at the political level, and and so um, and the Crusaders did not use the word Palestine. Neither did uh, the, 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 the 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 Muslim states that conquered uh, Palestine after the the fall of the Crusader states. They did not. The Ayyubids did not use the word Palestine. Salah al-Din did not use the word Palestine. Neither did uh, um, neither did the Mamluks or the Ottomans and so uh, the, the the traditional theory the traditional thinking was that it, the, the word palestine
0: fell out of use
1: which and what i try uh, to argue let me just
0: let me just interject right and the 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 point that's trying to be made here is if the word palestine fell out of use it also did not denote anybody's identity that's a very good point david you're absolutely right the whole reason
1: why this whole body of research exists in the first place of all these scholars like benny uh excuse me uh um <clears throat> um uh, the the whole reason this this body of knowledge exists in the first place, and the whole reason you have scholars like Bernard Lewis uh, writing paper history papers, uh, basically saying there was no Palestine, this word was never used, is precisely for the reason you just stated. It's that wow, wouldn't it be great if there was no Palestine? Wouldn't that be great for the Zionist story if they showed up to a land that was uninhabited, right? A land for a people for a people without a land, right? That's that's the Zionist narrative. Yeah. And so they're the hell bent on trying to. Trying to basically show that there was no Palestine in history, um, so I think that is the context within which I'm I'm, I'm writing uh, the history of the usage of the word Palestine, and and, and by the way, like there's nothing polemical. There, there, there's no political implications today. Um, uh, the, the, in other words, the, the history of the usage of the word Palestine is not politically relevant. Okay, if if people in 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 Palestine use the word Palestine in the 15th century or the 18th century or the 13th century. I don't understand what that has anything to do with home demolitions in East Jerusalem in 2022. Okay. Well, it's just not relevant.
0: Well, right. I mean, the, the, it's, it's not relevant. Uh, unless you are on a, on a, some kind of quest to weaponize history in order to sort of justify uh, political projects that are happening at the moment uh, where where you are going to construct a certain version of history in order to serve uh, best serve your political needs at the moment Zach how does that make you I mean as a historian right how does that make you feel about the discipline of history when you see in action how uh, sort of very well respected historians like 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 Bernard Lewis, uh, weaponize history like this?
1: I think it discredits the entire enterprise of history in the first place. I think that is the risk. I think when historians allow their uh, political ideologies to color uh, not just their approach to writing history, but but literally like their conclusions itself, what they, uh, you know, because history is not just about framing. It's also about like being honest about the evidence. Um, and, And I do think that, you know, historians are oftentimes not honest with the evidence. I think that historians really need to ask the question without I think Bernard Lewis arrived at the conclusion first that there was no Palestine because that was what he wanted to show. And he went back in history and found shards of evidence that supported that conclusion he had already come to. And I think this is extremely problematic. And I think this is, by the way, very common in history is that you have so many historians that start off, they're like, you know, I wanna argue, that you know the violence in Lebanon in the 1860s was a result of Western impact in Lebanon from the early 19th century onwards. Like that is what I want to argue because I'm hell bent on showing that all the problems in the Middle East are a result of Western impact. Okay. Right. Now maybe that that might be true, by the way. And I'm not I'm not making an argument one way or the other. What I'm saying is if you start with that a priori belief. And then go into the sources looking for shards of evidence that support that conclusion that is extremely problematic and is the opposite of how you're supposed to write history.
0: But you're also saying that that is sort of very often the case. That is very often the reason that people write history. I mean, you know, history, um, this is this is maybe... I mean, if you, if you told somebody to write a nationalist history, they wouldn't know how to do it otherwise. I think that's exactly the point, right? That this is
1: essentially a nationalist version of history. When you start with the ideology... And you say nations have rights to land. Well, if that's if I start with that ideology and I'm gonna write my history from the point of view that like the nation has certain rights, that's an ideology. We could might say that nations have no rights. Why should a nation have right? I mean, that's not obvious to me. That's not like that, that's not like part of the natural order of the world, right? That there are these nations and nations have rights to states, right? Even, like, even the first invent-
0: even the first part of your sentence, there are these nations, right? <laughs> let's 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 start with that part. <laughs>
1: Exactly. Like, who's by the way? Who said nation should be the unit uh, of analysis in 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 the in the international order that we live in? Maybe it should be some other unit of analysis. Maybe it should be a tribe or an individual.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So this is the, this is, I mean, the, I, I, thank you for Zach for, for sort of really provoking these questions. Uh, I mean, not just about the specific case of Palestine, but the, the, the way that this, I mean, Palestine, the, the example of Palestine, this is one of the reasons why it shouldn't just matter to people who are directly implicated in this conflict, because it tells us something about the broader projects, the broader political projects of, of, of our day and the way that they influence the way that we, uh, that we perceive history. Um, I wanted to get you to talk about one specific example, which I found exquisite in the, in your research. And that is the example of the uh, specific naming of Palestine as Southern Syria, because you have uh, made a very interesting sort of, twist in in, in in identified a very interesting twist in the way that the word southern Syria has been used it has been used by different groups for different purposes could you just give us that give us that anecdote or give us that example
1: absolutely so the phrase Southern Syria if you just google that phrase uh, you're gonna find all kinds of interesting uh, op-ed pieces from Jewish propagandists and Zionists and pundits telling you that, You know, there were no Palestinians. They always called themselves Southern Syrians. Um, Of course, the reason why uh, Zionists are hell bent on and trying to tell you that these Palestinians were always Southern Syrians, again, is because they're nationalists and they believe that the, the, the state, you know, Israel belongs to the Jews. And so wouldn't it be great if these Palestinians were actually just Syrians, right? Like then we don't even there is no Palestine national identity and Palestine homeland that we have to compete with where it's all ours. These people should just go to Syria. Now, that that's sort of the the reason why this narrative got popular in the first place, right, that that they started with the conclusion that Israel belongs to the Jews and then went into history looking for these traces of evidence that the the, the native inhabitants, the Palestinians actually were, were Syrians. Right. So that that's the thinking behind how the propaganda got popular. But uh, but historians, of course, don't start with or shouldn't start with ideological uh, uh, you know points of view. They they should start with, um you know they, they should start with the facts and and just sort of look to see what people actually call themselves. And if you go and look at, at the evidence, uh, what it tells you is that before the year 1917, the the phrase Southern Syria does not really appear in Arabic ever. Okay, so I found the phrase Southern Syria maybe two or three times in, in the course of of scanning maybe tens of thousands of newspaper articles and journal articles and books and manuscripts in Arabic before 1917, okay? It just doesn't appear in Arabic sources. In 1918, everything changed everything changed in 1918. So the question is what what happened in 1918 such that for, over the course of the next two year period you f- you start to see this phrase Southern Syria, Suriya al-Janubiyya in, in Arabic, right? I'm talking about Arabic sources right now. Um and and you start to see the phrase Southern Syria appear everywhere in Arabic. Now what happened was that, you know, the, the Ottoman Empire is uh joined World War 1 tragically. And and so um you know that pit, pitted them against the British Uh, sorry, the Ottoman Empire joined obviously the German side of of the war effort, which pitted them against the British. The British had occupied Egypt already in the 19th century. And so uh, over the course of the war in 1917, in the fall of 1917, the British invaded Palestine. They conquered Palestine by, uh, they entered Jerusalem in December 1917, conquered all the rest of Palestine in early 1918. And so by early early 1918, the British are now entirely in charge uh, of Palestine. And meanwhile you have um, uh, the Sharif Hussein of Mecca who is uh, uh, in communication with the British in Egypt and they're and and you have the Sharif Hussein uh, uh, Mc, uh, the, the Hussein McMahon correspondence, and so they're plotting to to revolt against the empire. The, the British send you know Lawrence of Arabia. He goes with the uh, the these Meccans, and they uh, basically uh, revolt against the Ottomans. They 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 take their army up to Transjordan and establish a state, an independent Arab kingdom in Damascus. Okay, after 400 years of Ottoman rule in Arab lands, you now have an independent Arab state in Damascus, and at the same time you have the British in control of Palestine. The same British, by the way, who just a few months earlier had declared their support for a Jewish state in Palestine via the Balfour Declaration. Now that is the setup here. So let me ask you this question, David. If you are a Palestinian sitting in Damascus, sorry, excuse me, if you're a Palestinian sitting in Jerusalem or Jaffa or Hebron or Nablus or Janine, and your two options are, hmm, do I want, want to do I want to be ruled by a Zionist supporting British military regime based in Palestine? Or would I'd rather uh, uh, would I rather join a semi-democratic, a- independent Arab kingdom based in Damascus? What, which which choice would you choose, David?
0: Well, I you mean, know so, it so it, it, it's not
1: even a choice. I mean do you want to be subject to colonial rule that is hell bent on turning your land into a zionist paradise or do you want to be subject to a semi-democratic independent arab state and i think the answer is obvious and so you have all these palestinians in palestine saying "No, no, no we're not palestinians we're syrians we're southern syrians in fact palestine never existed in history it was always called southern syria and so that's the origin of the reason why you have the phrase southern Syria emerge in history and after and so what happens is after 1920 the French violently overthrow that air independent Arab kingdom in Damascus so um you know that kingdom is gone but of course throughout the 1920s and 30s the memory of that kingdom the memory of having that independent Arab regime semi-democratic regime in Damascus that memory persists and so, for all these reasons of nostalgia, uh, you have all these Palestinians. Even throughout the 1930s and 40s, you know, um, 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 you know, wouldn't it be great if we could reunite with that Syrian Arab Kingdom and create a, you know, a greater Syria, Bilad al unite the Arab peoples of, of Syria and Palestine against this colonial division to divide us and conquer us? So this this persists, and so you have these Arabs. It's a minority viewpoint, by the way. Yeah. That most Palestinians in Palestine are sober and realize that. It, the British are not going to hand Palestine over to 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 uh, to the French Syrian government, who's going to hand it over to to some Arab state there that will that will replace the French government. That it, but most Palestinians are sober enough to realize that's probably not going to happen. But there are, of course, idealists who who continue to talk about the dream of of Palestine being southern Syria and having a greater Syrian kingdom. Um, and so what happened is after the nineteen, uh, uh, you know, after the establishment of the state of Israel. Um, You have all of these Zionists going into history, digging up these anecdotes of Palestinians saying it wasn't Palestine, it was Syria. But of course, it was precisely because of their loyalty to Palestine and their opposition to Zionism and their love for Palestine that they insisted that Palestine didn't exist.
0: Right. I mean, this is such such a classic example of how this sort of naming process and this identity process can be sort of, Turned around and subverted and then used against the very people who were who were trying to achieve certain ends by it I, I just didn't want to let it go by uh, zach you 've taken us actually now into sort of like away from the sort of more theoretical question of naming and into more specific episodes of history and I wanted to ask you to tie that a little bit to the question of self-determination because um, when I think about your work on Palestine I mean unsurprisingly it really challenges me to think about self-determination and I find that we have with the case of Palestine a very interesting sort of um, um, succession of different uh, um, regimes within which we can consider the concept of self-determination. On the one hand we have the Ottoman Empire which as you said was in charge for for centuries and uh, the Ottoman Empire of course is an agrarian empire, and we know that with an agrarian empire, the main goal is okay. We leave the local population alone as much as we can. We don't. We don't. We don't really want to interfere with the way that they produce things for us, because else we won't have anything to tax, right? So we're going to leave them sort of to their own devices, as long as they're not rebelling and as long as they're not paying their taxes, right? So even though you are ruled by a sort of empire, there is still the fact that that empire doesn't necessarily make itself felt so much in your day to day life. And then you have the British Empire that. We're talking about, which is a very, very different kind of animal, because it's a because it's an industrial empire, and an industrial empire does not does not depend on your local production. It's not trying to tax your local production. So the industrial empire gets to interfere with your society and with your identity in a way that an agrarian empire would never dream of doing. And finally, uh, once we sort of trash all of the empires, we still have the question of the nation state. So, for example, the Israeli nation state, where you have the as you were putting it already, the famous claim to self-determination. But then again, with the nation-state, the question asks itself, the question poses itself: like, who is the self that does, that does the determining, right, in the self-determination? So with Palestine, interestingly, we have. All three cases, right? We have the agrarian empire, the industrial empire, and then the nation state. So, how would you compare, uh, or you know, maybe you could walk us through these three scenarios a little bit, and 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 how they would have uh, sort of affected uh, the the self the, the self determination at a local level.
1: It's a very profound question. We're really getting at like, what is the source of legi- of legitimacy for any given state, and and I think over the course of the past 120, 30, 40, 50 years, um, international law uh, has developed and international law has a lot of opinions about that. And generally speaking, I actually support much of international. I think it's it's a, it's a tremendous uh, step of progress for humanity that all of these states around the world are coming around are developing a consensus around how these states ought to interact with one another, what ought to be some guiding principles of those interactions, um, for example just the idea that you shouldn't invade your foreign uh your, your neighbor um we, we can think of some contemporary examples of that happening right but that that is an idea that is based in international law right that a state has no right to invade the sovereignty of another state so international law is generally speaking a good thing now of course um you know that's the setup to what I'm about to say which is like for whatever reason you know th- this idea of national self-determination has also gotten popular as a principle within international law and this to my mind actually makes no sense whatsoever and i do and I, and so i do want to get into the details here because you know we, we we have this idea that you've heard it over and over again in the case of israel palestine you know, two states for two peoples right you know this principle you've heard every american senator and congressperson repeating this idea it's it is the accepted framework for trying to, within the United States, at least, and, and probably Europe and many other places in the world, by the way, including many places in the Arab world, such as the Arab initiative that was passed in Saudi Arabia in 20, 2003. So there is this principle that is generally accepted. By the way, it's, all, it's also accepted by the, the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. They all accept this idea that you know there will be two states. One of them will be uh, a Palestinian state and one of them will be a Jewish state. And, and and, by the way, this is the principle that guides so much of international law. and And I think, honestly, like this principle makes no sense to me. Now let, let me sort of get get into a, a little bit more details. So the first thing I would say is that I was looking up this this concept of self-determination. So I am not a his, historian of Germany. Uh, I'm not a historian of Europe of the nineteenth century, David. So maybe you can get kind of help me out here and fill in some of these details. But it turns out, um you know and and again i'm not this is not really my area of expertise so i'm venturing a little bit far out here but you know it it appears as if there's some literature that suggests that actually the concept originated in guess where of all places germany okay so let me just say that you know, anytime you know Germans develop in the 19th century and 20th century that we would be basing our concepts around international law, we'd be basing uh, concepts around peoplehood, you know, race, ethnicity. We would use you know German ideas to, to understand how we should base international order. It's a little suspect if you ask me okay um you know and and i don't and i don't know you know how it is that you know you know this concept in germany at least led germans to say aha we need german self-determination i don't know how that evolved from we need german self-determination germans need to be control of their own destiny i don't know the exact ways in which that evolved and transformed into Germans should be not just in charge of their own destiny, but they should be supreme. You know, they not only their own destiny, but other people's destiny, right? They are destined to take over the world, to control the Poles who are of an inferior race, right? So I think the problem is, as soon as you say that the source of legitimacy for the state ought to be a group, that you use a group's identity, the nation, let's say, as the basis for saying, you know, this group has the right to self-determination, I think that leads down a very, very dangerous path because it's a very fine line between saying my group ought to have self-determination to then saying my group ought to be supreme. And well, I because, do think that is a very... Yeah.
0: Uh, because the thing that you're doing then, okay, if uh, a nation should have the right to self-determination, then what we may, what we need to make sure is to prove that the people that we want to invade or colonize or dominate to prove that they are not nations, right? This is the whole sort of uh, Fanonian uh, arguments of sort of colonization that, that you sort of, um, that you deny the existence of the nation. right? So... I, that, that's a great
1: point. Like th- th- this is exactly why I- Israelis Jews uh, do not even want to call these people Palestinians, right? Like I- if you go to Israel Palestine, if you go to Israel and in you know go to Jerusalem or or, or Tel Aviv or or uh, Haifa and ask an Israeli Jew, you know, who are those Arabic speaking peoples who live next to you? They would say they're Arabs. They're Arab Israelis. They're they're not Palestinians, right? Um. Even by the way, many Arabs within Israel, many Palestinian Arabs who have carry Israeli passports, will tell you the same thing. And in fact, for the same reason, because they want to blend in. They want to have a normal life. They don't want to be politicized. So, so by the way, like, uh, but, but, but I think that the the question really is, you know, when you look at a state and you look at a nation state versus a non-nation state um, and you ask yourself, like, which of these states, like, which of these states make more sense? Like, does it make sense that the laws related to things like who gets to immigrate, who can marry, who, who can divorce, who, who can buy land? who can go to medical school, who can rent an apartment, who can build a home, who gets a permit to drill a well. You know, let me ask you this, David. Does the fact that you're Jewish or Palestinian, should that have anything to do with who you get to marry or who gets to build a home? I mean, if you're like racist, I guess it probably matters. But like, why should why should you say the premacy the the premacy of a state and the the rights that the individuals in that state have that it, the, the the that is dependent on your national identity I mean isn't that super racist like if we just replace national identity with racial identity isn't that like like apartheid and like racism like slavery and You know Jim Crow, like, isn't that like really, really like? And I don't really understand the difference between race and nation here. Like, these are just invented categories; we just made up, right? right? Uh, White people and black people; those are no different than Israeli people and Palestinian people. They're all completely invented. Hmm. And so, if you just say this invented group, you know, we're gonna we're gonna base your rights on whether or not you're part of this invented group. That makes sense to you, David? Sure as hell doesn't make any sense
0: to me. Right, and Zach, I, I I just have to interject here. I love the way that you take the. A specific example, the example of Israel-Palestine, in order to conclude not just something about that example, but in order to go from that to some, some of the sort of more basic principles that we take for granted without even sort of asking ourselves why we should take them for granted in the first place. Um, So I I want to I want to sort of follow up a little bit on the kind of um, Ottoman side of things because um, uh, that uh, with the Ottoman uh, when you when you go into the Ottoman Empire when you when when you go uh, to that sort of aspect of Palestinian history or history in general you get of course a very different kind of model I mean of course I'm not saying that the Ottoman model was I'm not saying that it was better I'm just saying that it was different right different in the sense that there was within the system of empire. Uh, a certain uh, degree of self-determination going on because local communities uh, uh, based on sort of religious um, uh, belonging religious identity etc., etc., et, cetera, et cetera, they had certain legal uh, uh, privileges or rights or they they, they they were able to sort of uh, make some some sorts of legal decisions among themselves without going to the Ottomans for that and uh, 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 had their own courts uh, had their own education uh, uh, opportunities to a certain extent weren't forced to um, assimilate into a master language etc et etc i 'm not again like you know i 'm not saying it was perfect i 'm not saying there was never ever any forced conversion i 'm not saying that there weren 't uh, different levels of taxation et etc et etc but the sort of homo- the sort of you know um a ruthless homogenization that is, a, that is a part of the nationalist project is is sort of by its nature not a part of the what the agrarian empire sets out to do and uh, you uh, Zach you are actually someone whose uh, travels have taken him not just into the region of Israel Palestine but in order to understand uh, conflict in order to understand sort of this, the, this kind of um, tension you've also been to the Balkans you've also spent time in the Balkans now this might not seem very connected to most people who don't know about the geography of the Ottoman Empire, which actually included both regions. Israel, Palestine, and the Balkans alike were part of the Ottoman Empire. And in these regions, you find somewhat similar uh, tensions, somewhat similar conflicts. Could you sort of... um, uh, maybe somehow bring together a region like the balkans and a region like israel-palestine with respect to how their current issues are related to the ottoman empire
1: i love that question david because I, I think you're absolutely right i think that generally speaking people do not realize that many of the things happening in the balkans today are quite similar to many of the things that are happening in the middle east today and and, and i think the the story goes something like this you had this Ottoman empire you had dozens and dozens of different ethnic, national, religious groups. Um, it's the 19th century. It's the age of nationalism. The French, the Germans, the Italians, they're all talking about how nations have the rights to states, right? This is what we we're just talking about. National self-determination. This is the heyday for the, 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 the idea that nations should have their own states, and of course this impacts the balkans as as i'm sure many of our listeners know and, and you have these uh nations in in the balkans the serbians the uh the bosnians um uh, the croatians they're all claiming their nations and they have the right the, the bulgarians right they're all claiming their nations and they have the right to self-determination and so that leads to all these wars in the balkans and that leads to all of these in, in, in the post-world uh, you know in the post-world war period you know that leads to the rise um uh, uh sorry that so in the 19th century, that leads to all these independent nation states. Um, and then the same thing happens in, in in the Middle East, right? You have the Arabs, you have the Turks, you have the Armenians, you have the Jews who who, who um, end up uh, pursuing a Zionist uh, program. So you have the same thing happening all across the Middle East. And and so I think in in the aftermath of World War One, when many of these uh, former parts of the Ottoman Empire uh, are either uh, colonized or they become independent states, you end up having similar problems. And so, for example, right, like you have, um, you know, just to take, um, the, you know, one example of, of what happens in, in, in Serbia. So you have the Serbs, they have their own nation state and, um, you know, they're interested in expanding their nation state to other parts of their historic homeland, right? Like, you know, Kosovo was, histo- apparently, was part of the, you know, ancient Serbian kingdoms. You know and oh the battle of 1389 right like if you ask your Ser- your average serbian uh, today in, in belgrade um you know uh, w- what do you think of kosovo your average serbian nationalist, well, kosovo is an integral part of you know the historic serbian homeland right to people who are more familiar with israel palestine that'll probably sound pretty similar to uh, an israeli nationalist saying hebron and you know, you know jerusalem and it, these are historic parts of the Jewish kingdoms in the ancient world, right? So whenever you have, uh, uh, you know, so, so I think whenever you have these empires that break up, you end up seeing similar things play out in the states that, that uh, uh, gain sovereignty, especially the nation states that gain
0: sovereignty in the ruins of the empire. Right. i mean in that in that in that respect, I think the sort of this um connection between the balkans and uh, and the Levant the Middle East it also sort of helps us to sort of deconstruct this idea that Eastern history and Western history sort of play out in these you know somehow fundamentally different civilizationally different ways right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's so many similarities. I mean, don't get me wrong. Obviously, like Israel, Israel-Palestine has its own, you know, unique history. Like Israel-Palestine is a case, is a textbook example of settler colonialism. Which, by the way, I think um, looks a lot more like, you know, um, uh, what happened in the United States, and Canada, and Australia, and New Zealand, and South Africa. Like that is a much better example, I think, for understanding the history of the Zionist movement. In fact, you might even say that. You know um, that it, Zionist movement is actually a an archetypical. You know, if you have ideal types, right? This concept of like there are different ideal types of of movements, and and you you would even say that actually, you know, if you say a settler colonial movement is a movement where the people, the settlers abandon their homeland, they they give up on their place of origin. They say, "We're this is not our home. We're going to move and create a new home somewhere else." We we've we've severed ties with our with our home country or our home empire. And 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 I think you know Zionism is is the most extreme version of that. Right? If you compare it to say the British, uh, um, you know the, the settlers in in colonial America, right? Like many of them kept their ties to the to, to the the motherland, and and they you know the, the worst. I mean, you know obviously the, you know the majority view was that by by the 1760s we want to break away, but. But like many uh, you know, American colonists wanted to preserve that connection to the homeland. But, but nevertheless, that was the settler colonial case. Whereas in the Zionist movement, by the way, it was it was even even more extreme ideal type where the Zionists were explicitly renouncing their former citizenships. They were rejecting their estate of of existence in um, in their former uh, uh, countries and saying no no we want to reinvent ourselves and build a new state in a new land right so it's it's actually a, a really a, a perfect example of settler colonialism right. so in that case actually you know it's obviously very different from you know, the Balkans where you don't exactly have that kind of settler colonial state coming in and moving in right. um, but of course you do have mixed populations and so I right. think whenever you have mixed populations and then you have nation states that right. come into existence in on top of those mixed populations, you see similar problems emerge.
0: Right. I mean, the this, uh, this situation where you basically um, you have uh, um, nations without states... And existing within some kind of larger political enterprise, but just as, uh, I don't know, cultural or ethnic or linguistic nations rather than as, uh, as something that is tied to a political apparatus in a territory. And then after hundreds of years of coexistence, obviously it becomes very difficult to uh, territorially separate those without resorting to some kind of genocidal uh, action. I mean, on paper, it's all very nice to say that each state, each nation should have its own state and that should have its own territory, but like, like uh, the only way that's going to work in the real world is you either assimilate or expel or exterminate populations that have uh, that have come to interact and to sort of coexist and live together with each other for hundreds of years and this is why uh, i feel that in the sort of former ottoman lands you have this sort of chain of genocides uh, that starts with uh, something like the armenian genocide and uh, during world war 1 and goes all the way to what you were describing the bosnian genocide and from there onwards to things like the Yazidi genocide by ISIS etc cetera, etc cetera, it's all part of the same story of trying to forcibly separate things nations populations whatever you want to call them that have sort of grown into each other over 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 hundreds and hundreds of years where they were sort of ruled by the same political apparatus that didn't kind of get all too involved in, in, in how those people were defining or determining themselves uh, Zach, uh, what I wanted to—I uh, mean, the, the the fact that you uh, you are somebody who has this perspective from both ends of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, it speaks to the fact that you, uh, as a historian or as somebody who's involved in area studies, you 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 haven't just sat at your desk and read the books about, or, or 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 whatever, listened to the uh, to the to the to the to the programs that explain the area, but you've actually spent a lot of time in the area itself, and uh, in fact, you've sort of uh, thinking about what you've talked about uh, regarding uh, your formation uh, on different platforms uh, I've come across sort of three main things that have made you who you are as a historian and as a, as, a, as, a, as a thinker. Firstly, of course you have the books, of course you have the book knowledge, but then you have the travel and you have the interpersonal contacts. And I just wanted to ask you, as a practitioner of history, as, a, as, as somebody who, who, who researches and who talks about this, what is the relation between these three things? Because I can imagine that over the course of your sort of development, um, it, there has been, uh, there must have been some tension between the book knowledge and the and the and the and the personal experience.
1: Yeah, I think on, at first glance, you might say that history writing can be done uh, by anyone um, without having to meet any. Palis- you could write the history of the Palestinian people, let's say, in the nineteenth or early twentieth century. Uh, at first glance, you might say you could write that history without meeting Palestinians ever traveling to Palestine. I think at first glance you might say that that's obviously possible but i think in reality that's just not how it works and so just just to share a few examples of what i mean by that how is it that you can even write Palestinian history in the first place what what sources are you able to even get access to well if you're just using you know published materials well, sure, okay, maybe you can find those in Western libraries or you can find those in the Israeli National Library or you can find those maybe in um, you know in certain archives that are accessible to the public. But um, by the way, if you're Palestinian, you can't access the Israeli National Library in Western Jerusalem. Uh, if you're Palestinian in the West Bank or Gaza, uh, you, you do not have access to Western libraries. You probably don't have great uh, access to paywalled materials, right? So already we see that who you are, what your passport is, um you know where you're allowed to travel to all of these things do have a tremendous impact on what kind of history you're even going to be able to write it, it, it because your identity who you know it has a huge impact on what you have access to as a historian um and so um and so for example you know when when i was doing dissertation research i wanted access to all these private libraries private collections and so i went to the Khalidi library in Jerusalem and guess what had i not spoken arabic uh, there's no way I would have gotten access to that library. Um, the reason I was given access, by the way, was because they would mistakenly confused me for a member of the Khalidi family. Th- there was literally a misunderstanding that I neglected to correct. I was like, all right, these people think I'm like a Khalidi. All right, let's just run with this. And, and it worked and I got access to the library but that, that, that's just like one example right but if you, if you if you look at if you look at the acknowledgment sections of the the best history books written on Palestine think of uh, Bashar al Dubani's uh, m- m- merchants in Nablus from 1700 uh, to 1900 right he talks about going from door to door literally knocking on people's doors in Nablus looking for uh, private papers you know if you ask Salim tamari who is one of the the most brilliant historians of Palestine today. He's, I don't know how he does this, but he manages to find these unpublished, man, uh, me, um, unpublished memoirs, unpublished diaries of all these Palestinians. Wasif Jahari, Arif Al-Arif. He's finding them and publishing them, right? So, you know, obviously, you know, who you, who you are, who you know, who your friends are, who your contacts are. are. Are you able to travel? Where are you able to travel to? All of these things impact what kind of history you're even be able to write in the first place. Yeah, And, and that, those are sort of the obvious examples. Maybe you might even go a step further and say, even, you know, Oral history is another, by the way, interesting kind of history that like has been a significant, really important in the case of Palestine, precisely because the Palestinians do not have a national archive. They do not have a repository of of, of their collected histories, um, be them written or oral. And so you have a lot of very important history uh, that has been written on Palestine using oral history. Another example, I would say, is that even merely what you choose to write about, what topic are you interested in studying in depth? That is obviously going to be impacted by who you know. What are you, who are your contacts? Where are you traveling to? What, what things are piquing your curiosity today? Because I do think that you know, history, you know, I, 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 like I said, you, you cannot start with your conclusions when you're a history. But I do think you want to be aware of what people today care about. What are people interested in today? And I do think you need to talk to people. You need to understand where people are at. What are their biases? What, what things do they believe? And then if you know what your average Palestinian or Israeli Jew today believes about 1948 or about the origins of Palestinian identity or about the 1967 war, like if you have an understanding of what the average Israeli Jew or Palestinian thinks about those things today, that's going to give you some insight into what questions you should be asking, what you should be looking for in the documents. So I do think it actually matters a great deal, even though at first glance, you might say it actually doesn't matter.
0: Right. No, no, I I absolutely agree with you. And you have these, uh, I mean, it's not just Palestinian history. You find this all over what we call uh, the so-called area studies. I mean, you know, I've uh, had the opportunity to teach and uh, do research at universities in Germany and Austria, where you have these uh, very large Turkish populations. And I work in Turkish studies. And uh, the professors at these universities, (laughs) often, they got into Turkish studies before these significant populations started entering, uh, uh, these Turkish populations started going to universities. So they could basically get away with being Turkish studies professors without even having a very sort of firm grasp on the knowledge, I mean, uh, on, the, on the language. I mean, I'm not saying that they didn't know the grammar, but like, you know, expressing yourself, actually sort of being at home, sort of the language, the language is a, is a vessel for the culture. And sort of, uh, you know, just the dry grammatical knowledge of the language is very different from knowing something about how the culture works. So you, I, I often experience these paradoxical situations in these schools where professors, whose Turkish was actually sort of, you know, if, if we talk about it as a spoken kind of living language, their knowledge of Turkish was actually worse than that of their, their students. And then giving those students bad grade in Turkish because they made some grammatical mistakes.
1: <laughs> That's hilarious. By the way, it's the same in Arabic. Like you have many Arabic uh, professors. I mean, cer- certainly going back, de- uh, yeah, I think things are changing now. But certainly, if you go back many, many decades ago, yeah, you know, to be an or o- Orientalist scholar meant to know Arabic grammar and philology. It did not mean you could have a conversation in Arabic.
0: <laughs> right. And I mean, this uh, that sort of brings me to my to my last question that I want to. I mean, I could actually talk to you for hours, but I have to wrap it up sometime. And uh, um, we were we we've started talking about education, so that's actually a good place to sort of uh, segue into the final question that I have for you which concerns again bringing bringing me back to the topic of your PhD thesis we've been talking a lot and you have been talking about a lot uh, on other platforms as well about your PhD thesis which is weird because usually you know as you know a PhD thesis is something that either ends up rotting away in some corner of some university library or at best it gets reworked into some book and the author does their best to make us forget that it was everything a PhD thesis to begin with. But here you are five years after you wrote your PhD thesis and people are not asking you about your book or about this or about that. They're still asking you about your PhD thesis particularly. So my question for you, is actually a double question. The first question is why is the PhD thesis? Why do you think it is such an embarrassing document for most academics? And why is yours not? I mean, what did you do? that made your phd thesis different and secondly a connected question which brings me to sort of the the beginning of our talk uh, of our conversation is uh why do so many people with embarrassing phd thesis actually end up as academics and why did you not
1: uh, david this this question is music to my ears as you could probably uh, imagine i mean just just to to, to highlight the the, the the point you made i just want to share one brief anecdote because i completely agree with you that for that most phds uh theses are are embarrassing and just just to illustrate that point there was a few years ago i sent an email to the the it was the director of the national institute for the humanities i believe the ni um, no the national endowment for the humanities excuse me the neh they have these grants that they give to people, um, in order for them to turn, uh, in order for them to write a popular book, that's that's the goal: is to get academics in the humanities writing popular books. And so I submitted, it. I was like, "Cool, this is right up my alley, right?" So I submit this. Uh, so I'm emailing the director because they have this provision in the you know the fellowship announcement that says something to the effect of, you, "You're not allowed to uh, apply for this fellowship if you're planning on turning your PhD thesis." into a book like that is disqualifying you from this fellowship because obviously right because PhD theses are all embarrassing and there's no world in which a PhD thesis could ever become a popular book right that was the assumption and so i asked him i said i sent this director an email i said look you know i am i'm i'm applying for this uh you know this fellowship there's maybe one one and a half chapters of my dissertation which like i think are interesting i think they have popular appeal and you know i'm i'm going to expand on those chapters and, and turn those, let's say, chapter and a half into a, a full length book, uh, you know, and maybe some of the more academic parts of the dissertation, the other three or four chapters would not be part of the book um, or we'd maybe condensed to a very small section. Um, and he said, look, um, there. And he said, no, th- th- there's no world in which even one chapter of your PhD thesis would be relevant for this for this fellowship. <laughs> so the, the perception of PhD theses from the director of the National Endowment of for Humanities, which is a you know, the, the federal United States federal government's institution um, for funding humanities research, the opinion of the, the United States federal government is that 100% of every word of every dissertation ever written in the history of humanity is not worthy of a public audience. Okay, that is the perception that we have today. And unfortunately, I think you're basically right that most PhD theses are embarrassing. And there are a lot of reasons for this. I think the first problem is the word length, is is, is, is the word count. PhD theses are required to be a hundred thousand words. I think if you ask any really good writer what the key to their good writing is, it's rewriting and it's condensing, it's pressing the delete key. You want to be economical in your writing. And so what you do is what I did when I reached a hundred thousand words was I said, okay, well. It's time to start rewriting and editing and cutting and pressing the delete key. I got to 100,000. And after the, the 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 after I went rewriting and editing and deleting, I was down to 20,000 words. And I was like, holy shit, I need to now write another 80,000 words. Actually, that's not true. Because if I write 80,000 words, then I'll have to rewrite that and then bring that back down to 30,000. So actually I need to write like 500,000 words, which is just an insane number of words. And so I think the first problem is the length requirement. It is very difficult to write 100,000 crisp, tight, economical. It's very difficult to do that. Um, the second problem, I think, is that you know, academics are not taught to write. I was not given a writing class in graduate school. And I don't. I think that's, that's more or less uh, par for the course. I don't think graduate students are taught to write. And by the way, writing is really, really hard. Um, it's really easy to be a bad writer and really, really hard to be a good writer. Um, and then maybe the third thing I would say is, academics are taught to to write on topics whereas say writers journalists are taught to find stories and there's a big difference between a topic and a story so for example um uh, um, identity in british mandatory palestine that's a topic you know the origins of a palestinian identity you know that's more of a story. i'm 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 uncovering the origins um th- th- that's one example, right? But you could really think through anything any time look at any dissertation, look at any dissertation. The vast majority of them are it's like I'm stating the topic of the dissertation. but that topic, it's not inspiring curiosity. It's not triggering my interest. It's not pulling me in with some hook or some catch. It's not a story. A story is supposed to pull you in with a hook. It's supposed to be, a, you know, there's a beginning, there's a, a rising action, there's a climax, and then there's the letdown, right? A, a story has phases. It builds up. You're, you're, you're telling me about how something happened, why it happened. You know, you're building me up to some, like, pinnacle, some, you know, climax, right? Like, that's a story. And you're trying to explain why something happened. Whereas a topic, I'm just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to explain to you the four types of identity that existed in British Mandatory Palestine. There were Muslims. They had a religious identity. They also had a Palestinian identity. They also had an Arab identity, right? Like that's not a story. And so I think you have, for all of these reasons, I think academics struggle to reach broader audiences. They also are reading academic literature, which is jargon laden and complex. And, and again, is not well-written itself. And so they're basically being fed with bad writing. And so no surprise that if you read hundreds and hundreds of books for your comprehensive exams, those hundreds of books all being fairly poorly written, all being very complex, all being about... Um, so, uh, about topics, not stories, then of course you're going to follow in their footsteps and also do all those same things. So I think it's also a legacy problem. Um, and so that just layers and layers of problems with academic research, especially the PhD dissertation. And so I think ultimately to answer the first part of your question, apologies for, for rambling for so long here. But to answer the first part of your question, I think that's why um, most PhD theses are, are embarrassing. By the way, there's another reason, which is that, you know, PhDs are taught like the, the PhD dissertation is a means to an end for most people. And in fact, the, in many cases, they, a, a PhD student will embargo his or her PhD dissertation for two years after it's been written. Now, let me ask you this, David. If you're a journalist would you would you write a journal would you write an article for new york times but then embargo it for 2 years I mean, just think about that for a second like as a journalist as a writer you're you're trying to reach people you want people to read what you write whereas as a as a phd you want as few people to read this thing as possible. Like the whole incentive structure is to like hide this thing behind a paywall. So no one in the world can read it for two years. Such that maybe, hopefully that makes it more likely you're going to get a book contract because ultimately you need that book contract to get an academic job. So right. there are all these misali- incentives are misaligned. Right. It's built on. And so th- there's so many problems.
0: Um, before you go on to the second part of my question, I'm not sure that you remember it, but um, <laughs> I just wanted to point out that this is also, uh, I mean, it's implied in what you said but just to make it explicit this also then feeds in, i mean this sort of jargonification and this uh, these requirements regarding uh, word count etc cetera, etc cetera, they, they also feed back into this thing where the the research becomes inaccessible uh, to 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 normal people and what that means is that then you have to take uh, whatever somebody like bernard lewis says you have to take you you have to take take them by their by their word you have to take it at face value because you can't really go and act the sort of the research that the, the the sort of nuts and bolts research that has been done behind the scenes in order to enable him to reach the conclusions that he's reached so you don't have access to that so it also becomes not just a paywall it also becomes a sort of political firewall in a way if you want uh, uh, preventing uh, the regular person from accessing uh, academic work
1: i couldn't agree more i it's it's a tremendous disservice to the public to use jargon to make your research inaccessible uh, to reference co- academic concepts that the average person is not going to understand i don't think that makes any sense and 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 i completely agree with you that your, your sense is your, what you're essentially doing is is leaving the field open for these propagandists who who do who are better writers and who do have the ear uh, um, uh, of of public officials of of major journal uh, of of major newspapers and major publication outlets Th- these people who who are do not have history at heart who are not trying to uncover the truth but who have ulterior motives and who are pushing propaganda you're leaving the field open for these people so it's a tremendous disservice to the public
0: Right. And maybe that does that. Maybe that does answer the second part of my question of why you did not end up being one of those academics with embarrassing PhD thesis who went into academia.
1: Yeah, I guess I, I was answering without even realizing I was there. Answering, but you're, you're absolutely right. I think that it is it, it. we as historians, I think it is my it, it is our job uh, to understand what it is about the past that people today are interested in. And then do the do the do your homework, do your research, get in, learn the languages, get into the archives, find those unpublished sources, find those unpublished documents. It's you gotta get in the weeds, but you've also got to answer the questions that people today are interested in. And in my case, you know, in, in the case of Palestine. There's all this propaganda about the origins of the Palestinian people. There's all this propaganda about southern Syria. There's all this propaganda about the emperor Hadrian who eventually erased Judea and introduced the word Palestine into into history. There's all this propaganda about all these things about Palestinian history. And if I were to take the academic approach of, hey, let me just write some jargon-laden you know, uh, inaccessible, kind of like, um, you, know, uh, you know, very much in the weeds, very much you know, disconnected from these debates of just like, you know, I, I think that would be a tremendous disservice because I think that we as historians have a responsibility to the public. You know, the public is the one funding this research. People don't realize this. But guess who pays for your salary at the University of Michigan? But guess what? It's taxpayers. It's United States taxpaying citizens who are paying for your salary. And guess what? Those people have questions, and it's your job to answer them. And guess what? Even if you're not at University of Michigan, let's say you're at Princeton, a private school, guess what? Your salary is even more so funded by the public. And this is crazy for people don't realize this, but private schools get a ton of, I mean, we're really veering off course here, but you know, you owe basically, as a historian, almost no matter where you're teaching or where you're doing research, you are being funded by and supported by the public, whether or not you realize it. And so if your attitude is you know, to hell with the public, I don't need to speak to them. I don't need to answer the questions that you're interested in. Well, guess what? But guess what the public is going to do to you? They're going to start cutting funding to your institutions. They're going to start reducing tenure track jobs, eliminating tenure, and 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 and, and the adjunctification of the entire academia. Right, David, I'm sure this is a topic that is near and dear to your heart as well, so I'm curious what you think about this. But yeah, you're you're basically you're you're, you're going to send you're going to push a death wish onto the entire industry of academia and history reading which is a tremendously unfortunate thing
0: absolutely Zach and I mean like you know uh, uh, to, to, to to get an idea of uh, what I think about these topics I think people don't have to go any further than the picked website they, they can look at the manifestos that we put up there they can look at why we funded founded the institute in the first place which is exactly uh, for the reasons that you've been describing exactly uh, because uh, of this disconnect uh, between uh, between uh, what it means to be an academic in the humanities today and uh, and uh, public responsibility something uh, the the the, f- the fact that you uh, you know you you are trying to do something that ha- resonates that has some that's, that has some kind of meaning some some kind of significance for the public so that is exactly uh, what this is about so thank you Zach for bringing that up um i've already taken too much of your time I'm, I'm, i as I said I could talk to you for hours but uh, i I do feel that here I should bring us to the end uh, of this uh, episode of the last ottoman which is a podcast series in which we discuss the ottoman empire and its legacy today Uh, we are at the paris institute for critical thinking my name is david salem sayers and today i had the distinct pleasure of talking to zachary foster who generously took the time to share with us his insights not just about palestine but also about history and about scholarship in general zach thanks again for being with us today
1: Yeah, it's always a pleasure.
0: Uh, If you our listeners would like to support The Last Ottoman or the rest of our non-profit volunteer work at the Paris Institute, I invite you to become a member of our community. Membership starts from 3 euros a month and enables free public lectures, open access, online journals and podcasts like this one, fair compensation for our course instructors, and everything else we do at the Paris Institute to create a public space for critical and creative thinking. Membership is easy. Just visit our website at parisinstitute.org. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll see you next episode.